Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and how you continue to show yourself to us, your works and your ways, and we pray now, God, that you would give us hearts and minds to receive from you and to grow in you. Amen. Well, I have some good news. If you are like most people, you are way above average in almost everything you do. Psychologists call this the state of illusory superiority. Some people call it the Lake Wobegon effect. You know Lake Wobegon from Garrison Keillor, that fictional Minnesota town where all the women are strong and the men are good looking and the children are above average? It simply means that we tend to inflate our positive qualities and abilities especially when we compare them to other people. Every one of us tries to justify ourselves. It's common to the human experience. And there's been a number of studies done that reveal this tendency to overestimate ourselves. For instance, when researchers asked one million high school students how well they got along with their peers, none of the students rated themselves below average. A matter of fact, 60% of the students believed that they were in the top 10%. And 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. And you'd think that college professors would have a greater sense of self-insight, but they were just as biased in their abilities. 2% of college professors rated themselves below average. 10% were average, and 63% were above average. And 25% rated themselves as truly exceptional. Now, of course, this is a statistical impossibility. But one researcher summarized the data this way. He said, it's the great contradiction The average person believes that he is better than the average person. And Christian psychologist Mark McKinn contends that the Lake Womagon effect reveals something about us. It reveals our pride. He writes, one of the clearest conclusions of social science research is that we are proud. (laughs) We think better of ourselves than we really are. We see our faults in faint black and white rather than vivid color. And we assume the worst of others while assuming the best in ourselves. This same tendency often holds true to how we view ourselves and our relationship to God. Just as we inflate our abilities in comparison to other people, so often we also inflate our moral standing as it relates to God. And there's a word for this. It's called self-justification. And it is this self-justification that the Apostle Paul is vehemently fighting against in Galatians chapter 2. And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of Galatians. 
Galatians chapter 2 is found on page 972 of your pew Bible. And you might remember that at this section in the book, chapter 2, Paul is in this biographical section. He's explaining a little bit about his own life and ministry in historical context. And he does so all to drive to this very important point. This theme that continues to pop its way up through the book. And we see it here in Galatians chapter 2 as well. And so verse 11 begins and it says this. It says, but when Cephas, Cephas is another name for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. For if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." The scene begins with Peter, he's called Cephas here, coming from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now you might remember that in the previous scene, the the scene was reversed. That Paul and those with him went to Jerusalem to see the Jews and to talk about this grace that God has given to the Gentiles. Well now the scene is flipped. The Jews come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and the fact that Peter begins his time eating with some of the Gentiles, but then decides to withdraw from them, becomes the cause for controversy. And this is one of the only instances in the New Testament where we see two apostles of Jesus in open opposition or conflict with each other. So the scene is tense, and the stakes are high. Paul is rebuking Peter for his withdrawal from the Jews, and it's important, I think, to 
imagine or to know that as a practicing Jew, it was slightly miraculous that Peter, a Jew, began to eat with the Gentiles in the first place. You see, the clean laws of the Old Testament set forward regulations for the Jews to follow so that they could be clean to enter into worship of God. And if you weren't ceremonially clean, you couldn't worship. And some of the ways that you were unclean would be through the eating of certain foods, through having certain types of illnesses, through touching dead things, and even by associating with certain types of unclean people. The Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. They'd get spiritual cooties if they did. They ate the wrong food, they ate it in the wrong place, and they were the wrong sort. And to eat with them meant that they would not be clean and therefore could not approach God. But then something happened. Jesus came to both Jew and Gentile, and as Peter began his apostolic ministry, God gave him a vision. You can read about it later today in Acts chapter 10. And in the vision, God provided Peter, a hungry Peter, with some unclean animals to eat. And Peter said, well, I'm a practicing Jew. I need to be clean. I can't be unclean. But God rebuked him. And he said, what God has made clean, do not call common. God, of course, was relating this to the Gentiles. And the message to Peter was that through faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, not only the Jews were made clean, but the Gentiles were made clean as well. And so Peter immediately met this man, this Gentile convert named Cornelius, and he went into his house that unclean place. And the Gentiles were shocked as Peter proclaimed, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. (laughs) Well, that was earlier. But now you fast forward to Antioch in Galatians chapter 2 and we see that Peter had come to Antioch, he did his normal thing, he ate with the Jews, but then when the Jewish Judaizers, the believers who still held to the law, when they came to town, Peter withdrew from those Gentiles. It's sort of like a bad high school lunchroom scenario. You don't want to be seen with that sort. I mean, Peter knew that people were justified before God by faith in Jesus. He preached that people were justified by God through faith in Jesus. He ate with Gentiles before, but now he drew back. It says he was scared 
of those Judaizers, and he had a lapse of judgment. And his actions displayed hypocrisy. And verse 14 says that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So strong-willed Paul rebuked strong-willed Peter so that everybody could see it. It's a pretty big thing to say that someone's conduct is out of step with the truth of the gospel. It's quite a big thing to say that someone stood condemned, as Paul says in verse 11 about Peter on this particular issue. And so this gives you a glimpse into how serious the issue of justification really is. And we see the problem that plagued those Judaizers that Peter was trying to process and a problem that plagues us in so many ways as well. The problem is self-justification. Now, justification is a legal term. To be justified means to be declared innocent or declared righteous in the court of law. And the question of justification is at the very heart of what it means to be in a relationship with God, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. The question is this, very straightforward. How are we justified before God? Or to phrase it another way, how are we, finite, sinful people, declared innocent before a holy and eternal God. The Judaizers on one side said that yes, we need Jesus, but we also need to follow the law of the Old Testament and become Jewish. We need to do something. And if being justified requires us doing something then this is rightly called self-justification. But Paul on the other side says very clearly in verse 16, look at it with me, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's two ways to look at how you are justified before God. But only one of them can be right. Self-justification or justification by faith in Jesus alone. And my friends, this might seem like a very distant issue to you, but I promise you that the temptation to believe in self-justification is very very strong. We might not think to ourselves that we have to follow the Old Testament law to have fellowship with God, but we are so often tempted to think that we need to clean ourselves before we can enter into the worship of God. We are so easily brought down the path of thinking that 
we could commend ourselves in some way to God. And I hear this all the time. You can imagine as a pastor, uh, when I invite someone to our church that I meet in the community, many of the responses illustrate this temptation towards self-justification even before worshiping God. And they sound like this. They say, Nick, are you sure it's okay if I come to your church? I'm a recovering alcoholic. Or, I'm divorced. Does your church allow divorced people to attend? Or, I think I'd be too embarrassed to come to your church. I have a child who's in prison. Some of the people in this community know about that. And my family is a mess. Are you sure that it's okay if I come to your church? Or the most common of them all. Oh, pastor, you don't want me to come to your church. If I walked into the building, the roof would collapse on us all. There's a certain perception that church and the worship of God is only for good people. That God only wants clean people to engage him. And the way that you become a clean person is by acting a certain way. This is the subtle notion of self-justification. That you can commend yourself in a certain way to God. And we all tend to go there in one way or another. God, if I do this certain thing, I'm sure you'll bless me more. God, if I commend myself to you in this way, I'm sure your hand of favor will be upon me. God, if I avoid this but tend toward that, then your unique favor will be in my life. I commend myself to you again and again and again. We all tend to go there. Perhaps you've been like me, and when you've struggled with sin, you felt so ashamed and so unworthy to even go to God in prayer, to say, God, to even ask God for forgiveness. I don't even have the right to approach you because I'm back in this place again. And it's a paralyzing feeling in its effect. And it's in those moments that I force myself to remember that I don't go to God on my own merits. I'm not declared innocent before him on my own deeds. I'm declared justified because Jesus gives his righteous standing to me and I have my faith in him. Or perhaps you've believed the worst. At some point you made a profession of faith in Jesus. You believed in him that he would forgive you But since then, you've strayed. Your heart is cold. You've struggled greatly with sin or self-indulgence. And you are now tempted to believe that somehow you've lost your salvation. But if you aren't justified to God based on you 
cleansing yourself. Then your weakness in sin will not undo the justification by faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And this leads to the wonderful truth of the gospel. So friends, let the scripture release you of the overwhelming pressure for self-justification. As if you could commend yourself to God all the more based on your good deeds or your good desires. We see in verse 16, and John Stott points out very helpfully, the emphasis on justification by faith alone in Jesus comes in three ways. Look at the first part of verse 16 with me. We see that it's general in its effect. It says that we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that a man, a human, any of the humans have this dynamic. It applies to humanity across the board. Secondly, we see in the middle of verse 16 that this is not merely an intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus was a real person, that he died and that he, buried, that he was buried and that he rose again from the dead. It's not merely an intellectual acknowledgement that he forgives, but that faith is truly a personal commitment to him. He says, personally, we also have believed in Christ Jesus. And we see in the third part of verse 16 that this dynamic is universal, that there's a theological principle at play. He says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Not the best people in the world. Not Gandhi. Not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham, not the Pope, and not you, (laughs) and not me. No one is good enough to justify themselves to God. We tend to think that we can. We're tempted to commend ourselves again to him. But Martin Luther helps us to see the mountainous sin that is before us. And it makes futile our attempt. He said it this way. He said the genius of Christianity takes the words of Paul regarding Jesus who gave himself for our sins as true and efficacious We are not to look upon our sins as insignificant trifles. On the other hand, we are not to regard them as so terrible that we must despair. Learn to believe that Christ was given, not for imaginary transgressions, but for mountainous sins. Not for one or two, but for all. Not for sins that can be discarded, but for sins that are stubbornly ingrained. Practice this knowledge and fortify yourself against despair, particularly in the last hour when the memory of past sins assails the conscience. Say with confidence, Christ, the Son of God, was given not for the righteous, but for sinners. 
If I had no sin, I should not need Christ. No, Satan, you cannot delude me into thinking that I am holy. The truth is, I am all sin. My sins are not imaginary transgressions, but sins against the first table. Unbelief, doubt, despair, contempt, hatred, ignorance of God, ingratitude towards him, misuse of his name, neglect of his word. And sins against the second table. Dishonor of parents, disobedience of government, coveting another's possession. Granted, I have not committed murder, adultery, theft, and similar sins indeed, but nevertheless, I have committed them in my heart. And therefore, I am a transgressor of all the commandments of God. Because my transgressions are multiplied and my own efforts at self-justification, rather a hindrance than a furtherance, Therefore, Christ, the Son of God, gave himself, he gave himself into death for my sins. To believe this is to have eternal life. Friends, no good works or self-cleansing will commend you to God. Nothing you can do will gain his favor. Only faith in Christ justifies us. And there are some wonderful implications of this truth for you. Let me give you just four. The first implication is that we can now, because of this justification by faith in Jesus alone, live for Christ truly. We can't cleanse ourselves from sin, and so the question arises within us, does this mean that sin is going to reign in us forever? And the answer is absolutely not. Galatians 2.20 points us to this, and if you don't have this verse underlined in your Bible, or if you've never memorized a verse in the Bible before, memorize this one. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so here is the answer as to why it's important to live a certain way, to pursue faithfulness to God, to try to do the right thing that he calls you to do, to try to serve him with your life, to try to give of your time, talent, and treasure generously. The answer is not to commend yourself to him, to cleanse yourself before him, to find yourself worthy of him. The answer is because the old self, enraptured in all of its sin, is dead, And now the Son of God, by faith, lives in you, and so that you want to live for him. He loved you and gave himself for you, and so you want to live for him. God showed me all of this grace and mercy that I didn't deserve because he loves me. So I want to live for him. Implication number two. Without the gospel, we regularly produce self-justification and self-reliance 
by comparing ourselves to others. We all fall prey to the Lake Wobegon effect. We become like the student who thinks he's in the top 10% or the professor, professor that believes that she's exceptional when compared to her peers. But we see here that justification is our greatest need before God. It's impossible to do on our own. Our attempts at law-abiding and self-cleansing are woefully inadequate. We need Christ to justify us. And so the implication is that we no longer have to continue to try and self-justify. And I tell you what, when you are released from that dynamic of trying to commend yourself to God again and again and again, there is incredible relief and freedom there. There is overwhelming joy when that weight and pressure is pulled from you. And you can experience a relationship and a life with him that you've never experienced before. And so many of us were reared in a religious system that said, do the right thing and then God will love you. (laughs) Commend yourself to him again this week and then next week will be better for you. And when you are relieved of that burden and you recognize that you need Christ and he alone can justify you, then you see that this is not a secondary issue. This is of the greatest importance because without it, you have no standing before God at all. Good works or self-cleansing will not commend you to God. Only faith in Jesus Christ justifies us. Implication number three is that we recognize and appreciate now the differences that we see in the Christian life and we can still maintain unity with other people who were justified by faith even though there's great differences. Because it's really easy for us to think that we are superior to other people to minimize our shortcomings and maximize what we think to be our best and to assume the worst of others while assuming the best of ourselves. And and this plays itself out in a lot of different ways. It's easy for churches that sing contemporary Christian music in their corporate gathering to think that they are much more spiritually advanced and culturally relevant and in touch with the Holy Spirit of God than churches that are traditional. And it is really easy for churches that are traditional to look at churches that sing contemporary music and say, well, clearly those immature people just need to have their emotions tickled because the mature ones of us sing hymns from the 1500s. And it's really easy for both of them to look at churches that do blended music like ours and say, you guys just don't know what you want. Likewise, it's easy to think of ourselves as superior and have the tendency to justify ourselves because we're not like those Gentile sinners around that table. And we withdraw like the Judaizers do. Or to say we're not from that neighborhood or we're not from that race or we're not 
from that country, or I thank God that I don't dress like that person does. But in the gospel, there is no room for that sort of prejudice, racism, pride, or superiority because of the fact that we are all justified by faith alone in Jesus. This gives no one a higher moral standing than the other. I mean, what can the guilty say when they look at the other guilty person? I'm a better criminal than you are? What can the treasure of God's grace say when they look at the other treasure of God's grace? I'm a better treasure than you are? And so the glory of justification by faith is that we no longer need to compare. And in that, there's wonderful freedom and unity. Implication number four is that we can have confidence before God. When you live in the dynamic of commending yourself to him again and again, you have no idea where you stand this week. Despite our ups and downs, our struggles with sin, Jesus saves those who have faith in him, period. Despite what you've done last night, if you've put your faith in Christ, Jesus saves those who believe in him, period. Despite the type of family that you've come, the neighborhood you've come from, the class that you're in, the job that you have, the worst of your sins, you can have confidence before God because there's nothing you can do to commend yourself to him. Your commendation comes from Jesus and you have your faith in him and so he saves you, period. And that is good news. You know, there's a cloud of doubt that hangs over home run king Barry Bonds. For baseball fans, even the fact that I called Barry Bonds the home run king just sort of makes you shiver a little bit. On August 7th, 2007, Barry Bonds hit home run number 756, the home run that broke Hank Aaron's record. And most of the talk about the new record, though, is still whether or not it should really count. So much so that Barry Bonds is not in the Hall of Fame today because he is alleged to have used steroids. Sports buffs say that if his name goes into a record book, that it should go into the book accompanied by an asterisk. And the asterisk, of course, means that the record is a sort of record. It's a footnoted record. It's a record, but it's tainted. The asterisk idea didn't go away. Mark Echo, the man who bought the ball that Bonds hit to set the record, asked baseball fans in an internet poll what he should do with it. And the fans overwhelmingly voted for him to brand the baseball with an asterisk and then donate it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And in the summer of 2008, that's exactly what he did. And so there it is. Home run ball 756 carved out in the middle of it a big asterisk. Now having an asterisk by your name is actually something that we should all be able to identify with. 
the book of Revelation talks about the end times and this thing called the book of life. The book in which all the names of God's children, each believer in Jesus is recorded. And a book with all the sins that they've committed in their life. And you would expect that each one of us should have an asterisk by our name in this all-important book. In the book, but tainted. (laughs) Don't really belong there. But so great is our justification in Christ. So perfect and powerful was his work on the cross. So just is God in justifying you that in the book of life there will be no asterisk by your name because of Christ's atoning work on the cross, you truly belong in the kingdom of God. And so Paul contends for this justification alone and he ends in verse 21 with the seriousness of it again. He says, look at it with me, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There's another way of saying that. Either Jesus is nothing to us or Jesus is everything to us. If you can save yourself, if you can justify yourself to God, if you can commend yourself to God again, then Jesus died for nothing and having a relationship with him means absolutely nothing. But, if you realize that you cannot save yourself, then Jesus' death and burial and resurrection will mean everything to us. And we'll trust him with every ounce that we can muster and we will follow him with every ounce of strength that he gives us and we'll serve him in this gospel that he has saved us with. Nothing or everything. (laughs) Which one is he to you? Let's pray. Lord, it's with careful consideration that we recognize in ourselves the ongoing temptation and desire to commend ourselves to you. And we thank you, Lord, that no such commendation will do, that the wonderful gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus and him alone is what commends us to you, that there is wonderful freedom found when this pressure is alleviated, and there's wonderful hope in the everlasting righteousness of your son applied to us. And so we thank you, and we ask that this would wash over us afresh and that it would give us a renewed confidence and a greater vigor in living for you because Christ died for us. We pray in his mighty name.
Amen.